Hey everybody, welcome back for another week of Ranching Reboot, your go-to podcast for regenerative agriculture insights. In this episode, we're joined by Greg Meyer to discuss the cedar tree problem on the Great Plains. From land clearing machinery to fire prevention, we'll explore how drought and overgrazing can exacerbate the issue and uncover the valuable lessons Greg has learned in the forestry mulching business. As a special treat, next week, I've got Will Harris teed up, so be looking for that episode. Get ready to reboot your thinking about farming, ranching, and the people that operate them. Let's go! Today's episode is brought to you by Audubon Conservation Ranching and the Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Seal, the new standard in connecting consumers to conservation. Once a ranch is certified as bird-friendly, a list that now includes yours truly, the Alexander Ranch, home of the Ranching Reboot podcast, beef and bison products can carry the Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Seal, which lets consumers know their purchases originated on lands managed for biodiversity and birds. Why birds? Because birds like the lesser prairie chicken and quail that I focus on are arguably the best indicators that your regenerative ranching practices have taken flight and are helping the entire ecosystem. If you're interested in joining me and Autobahn in working at the intersection of land, food, and wildlife, learn more at autobahn.org backslash ranching. Yo, what's good, my homies? It's your boy, Red Hills, and I'm here to tell you about these Bubble Link Beef Snacks. Let me tell you, they straight fire, you dig? I'm talking about real high-quality beef, seasoned to perfection, and slow-cooked to give you that melt-in-your-mouth taste. And let's not forget about the packaging. It's tight, it's fresh, and it's perfect for on-the-go snacking. Now, I know what y'all might be thinking. Red, ain't no beef snack gonna be good enough for me, but trust me, these Bubble Link Beef Snacks are straight-up game-changers. I'm talking about that real beef flavor, packed with protein and made with all-natural ingredients. So if you want to elevate your snack game, snack like a boss, then you got to try these Bobo Link beef snacks. I'm telling you, they're the real deal. And don't take my word for it. Try them out yourself and you'll see why I'm hooked. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. Peace out and stay snacking, my homies. My name is Red Hills Rancher and I'm the steward of the Red Hills. And if you didn't know, you do now. Bow wow. Hey there, Ranching Reboot listeners. Do you want to support our mission of promoting regenerative agriculture and telling the stories of those who are changing the food system for the better? then consider joining our Patreon community and becoming a patron today. By becoming a patron, you'll get access to exclusive bonus content, merch rewards, and more. Your support will help us continue to bring you fresh stories from some of today's most innovative and progressive farmers, ranchers, and other producers of food. And don't forget to join our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans, discuss current events and past podcast episodes, and get exclusive updates on what we're working on behind the scenes. Our Discord community is the perfect place to share your thoughts and ideas, get feedback on your ranching projects, and learn from other experts in the field. Whether you're a rancher, farmer, or just someone who cares about where your food comes from, you'll find a welcoming community of like-minded individuals on our Discord server. So join our Patreon community and our Discord server today, and let's keep rebooting your thinking about farming, ranching food systems, and the people that operate them. Ranching Reboot is your favorite regenerative ag podcast, and we can't wait to continue bringing you valuable content with your support. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, 
Greg, I appreciate you being here. Thanks for your uh, thanks for your time this uh, Saturday morning. Why don't you uh, just start us off uh, here on a podcast? Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're at and what you do. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Greg Meyer. I'm from Northeast Nebraska. Uh, I run a forestry mulching company. Uh, we clear a lot of pastures. We we kill cedars and uh, do a lot of government programs and. Uh, my farm and ranch too as well with my father uh, we take care of about 1200 acres of ground our own pasture ground and farm so uh, we're pretty busy people and i sell mulching teeth and, and uh, forestry equipment on the side too as an independent sales representative so that keeps me somewhat busy as well too so yeah we're doing the good trying to trying to make progress out there somehow so Good stuff. You like you like farming with your dad? I do. Yeah, I, I really do. It's uh, I, it's not really a, a work thing for me anymore. You know, it was it was uh, it, it's almost a vacation to to clearing trees. You know, it's uh, I enjoy it. It's 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 my time off. I, I really like it. So and I get to spend time with my dad. I've kind of always maybe appreciated time in a tractor helping out friends or helping out my cousins i've always kind of appreciated that i mean it is a change of pace and there's there's kind of a satisfaction of seeing you know of seeing that job done you know regardless of of the rest of it but yeah i I can definitely appreciate it from like a change of scenery point of view or just a change of pace point of view so how did you how did you get started in the forestry mulching business well just like Everyone in the Midwest, we we developed a cedar tree problem, and what? You know, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So, no, we we <laughs> I got fresh out of college and kind of wanted to find something to do to come back to the farm. Um, so I, I went to school as a automotive technician. I, I did that for a numerous amount of years and kind of got burnt out on it and uh, wanted to come back to the farm and, and invest in the farm somehow. So. Dad and I uh, went together on our first uh, skid steer, a, a standard flow cat 287, you know, and a tree shear that was the best of available at the time and, and kind of went to town on, on our own trees and, you know, we cleared a lot of ground and then the neighbors got picking on it and they're like, you know, this is a good deal. You know, would you want to do it for some side money? And, you know, yeah, that kind of snowballed and I did a lot of work for neighbors and you know it was a slow deal I mean it, it, it was a really slow transformation to get things going because uh, you know I think the first year uh, it I was I'll be forever grateful where I'm at in business now just for the fact that uh, the first year was so hard to get started I think we made like we did ten thirteen thousand dollars of work total that that first year and uh you know i kept wanting to to do it and and i had a desire to do it and i felt that there was a really good need to to get this going as a service here and eventually it really took off once i started doing some different things and you know getting into the mulching side of things and shredding the trees trying to speed up the process and cover more ground and actually genuinely try to uh give the the landowners the best work and as fast as possible for their for their money so okay so let's back up for just a second and let's kind of 
let's talk about the problem, the cedar tree problem on the Great Plains, kind of in a broad sense. So I, I'm, I'm a few years older than you. Won't really say how many because I don't like to throw that number <laughs> around a whole lot. Um, but it was, it was in the mid to late 1980s when my dad got out here and took over this ranch. And because of some of the attitudes of my, of, you know, his grandfather and some of the other men at the time around the 1950s, they thought that, oh, these trees are great. You know, let's just plant them everywhere. Uh, so the ranch was pretty much covered. And at the time, I remember like a lot of the neighboring ranches didn't have very many trees and it was just, you know, just the place we were on was pretty infested. So there was a, there was a guy that came to my dad right out of high school. Like I want to say that he graduated high school and drove down with his diploma still in his truck and asked my dad for a job cutting trees. And this was, this was in that Myers tree saw. Do you remember uh, I talked about that? Yeah. So yeah. for, and this was this was like 1985. Okay, so we're talking about a machine called a John Myers tree saw, and it was made from like two disassembled combines and some other miscellaneous parts. It was a like a Ford inline gas engine, 300 cubic inch six cylinder, and all it had attached to it was a couple hydraulic pumps. Like you had a pump to raise the blade, a pump to turn the blade, and a pump for each each front wheel and the casters in the back, and that was it. There was no air conditioning. There really wasn't even much of a guard on the front. No, no. You, you'd wear this shield and and you know earplugs and head and and muffs just because it was so freaking loud in there, and it was okay to run in the winter because there was so much heat from all the engine and the hydraulics and you were kind of basically sitting on the hydraulic tank. So running in the winter wasn't bad. Running in the summer was torture. It was it was bad. I didn't get any experience around that machine for a few more years, but anyway, those early years in the, in the eighties, uh, late eighties, I think dad, dad and Don spent like three, 4,000 hours in that machine going around, clearing all the ridge tops, getting everything cleared off. Well, that was, that was kind of like the first experience with cedars, but I think it wasn't until just a few years ago that, that a lot of the data started to be put together about how bad they really are and how, invasive these trees are and how much and how fast they're converting the Great Plains. Um, so like down in Oklahoma, Oklahoma loses over 700 acres every day to Eastern Red Cedar tree encroachment. Guys, like it doesn't sound like much. 700 acres is a lot when you're just completely taking that out of either crop production or grass production for cattle. And what we're noticing, what we're seeing since they've got, um, there's this fantastic database called rangelands.app. Have you, have you seen that, Greg? No, no, I'm not familiar with it. Man, I'll, I'll have to show that to you. Uh, so what you can do on rangelands.app is you can get on there and it's basically everything west of the Mississippi River because, you know, there's no rangelands east of the Mississippi, I guess. And they've got over 20 years of satellite data and they can show the difference between perennial perennial forage cover annual forage cover and herbaceous tree cover so they can show how much these trees are growing and how much grassland habitat they're taking away 
on, on across the whole Great Plains. Like we don't have to guess anymore. We actually have the data. And here's the scary part, Greg. We're still losing the Great Plains faster. Um, we'll just say in 2020, we're losing the Great Plains faster in 2020 to tree encroachment and brush encroachment. Then, and that's a faster rate than we ever converted the grasslands to farming. That's astronomical numbers. <laughs> it's it's bad. It's bad. So the trees, we've always, we've called it the Green Glacier. I know you and I have joked a little bit about the Green Glacier. And it's kind of like, if you can see one cedar tree from your property, you better, you better start thinking about it, better start getting ready. And I imagine up there in Northeast Nebraska where you guys have, you know, how much rain do you guys get up there? On average? Boy, I, I mean, it's, it's hit or miss, I guess. It just depends on the year. seems like every, every five years we go through a pretty bad drought, but, uh, you know, it's, we see quite a bit of rain typically a little more South of us than, than up here. So. I, I was just curious cause I know you're, you know, Northeast Nebraska, it's farther East than me. And generally as you go East, there's more rain. I always. I kind of had the idea growing up that the trees would pretty much stop going west from where I was because there just wasn't enough rain. And over the last 20 years, um, those cedar trees have kind of proved me wrong. They seem yeah. to, they, it doesn't even seem like a drought affects them. No, no, I actually think they, uh, you know, actually 2019 when we had the flood, you know, I think they actually slowed down <laughs> when they had an abundance of water. But I actually do think on a drought year um, that makes them more prevalent to grow. Honestly, I think the stress, they like the stress. And there may be less competition, possibly, you know, with, with, with lesser grass stand, you know, and, and overgrazing is a big thing, too. You know, after that, maybe that has a bigger factor in it as well by overgrazing it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, I was just, I was just kind of modeling in my brain how that would work. So there's a, one of the guys that I like to listen to a lot that's, that's done work on this, on that rangelands.app um, program I was talking about. His, his name is Dirac Twidwell and he's out of University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Have you, you're shaking your head. Have you heard of him? I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. How did you hear of him? from you I, yeah you kind of promoted him a little bit and i've looked him up so yeah i pay attention to you buddy <laughs> okay um what, what was i saying though and anyway um direct says that <clears throat> that the uh that the seeds are about 90 to 95 percent more likely to germinate after they go through a bird Okay, but the cool part is these small birds have a, such a fast digestive tract that that berry only stays in there for about seven minutes. And that's only about enough time for that bird to get two to 300 yards away from that seed source tree. Yep. So that's the good news is we don't have to kill every cedar tree on the planet. We just need to get rid of all the females. Um, you want to, what do you know about cedar trees? How much? How much have you studied them as you're as you're turning them into dust? Well, the scientific side of things, I you know, I haven't followed so much of it more than 
I see a lot of different scenarios, I guess, being in the field with different landscapes all the time, how, how the process of attack is going to be and what the best recommendations are going to be for each producer, you know, uh, to go along with what you said, you know, typically all these windbreaks installations that they put in, you know, you'll see the worst uh, encroachment starting to, to come out from the plantations, you know, where they plant the shelter belt windbreaks, you know, or, or the, the valleys where they're native, you know, you'll see a definitive line where, you know, they like 200 yards out from that, there's a lot more seeds seedlings growing you know so that, that makes a lot of sense to what you're saying there so there's there's actually a lot of programs that are that are paying to take the the shelter belts out not only just uh, the taking the females out but removal total removals as well for that reason so before before i start picking your brain and and talking about some programs like the big thing i think that's going to be pretty important to talk about when we're talking about, you know, why we need to prevent these trees from coming in and taking over our rangelands. To me, the big one is water. It, it's, it's water. So, and I can speak from personal experience of what happens when you go into a draw, clean it out, but I'd like you to tell us a story. Um, an eight inch cedar tree. Now it's eight inches um, and when trees, when they measure trees, they generally measure trees diameter, breast height, which means about four feet off the ground. They want to measure the diameter of that tree. So an eight inch cedar tree is going to drink about 30 gallons of water a day. Okay, folks, let's put, let's put 30 gallons of water a day in perspective. It doesn't sound like a lot. When I was, uh, way back in the day when I was a tadpole in the Navy and we had to make the water on the ship. On the aircraft carrier, you were allotted about 60 or 65 gallons of water per person per day. That sounds like a bunch, but you got to take, that's not just water for washing your face and flushing the toilet. That's water for taking a shower. That's water for washing your clothes. And that's water for cooking your food. So 65 gallons of water a day, that's two cedar trees. So... Tell us what happens when you go in and clean out one of those canyons, Greg. Water starts flowing, man. And there's been numerous occasions that, you know, I've been on a person's ground where springs will come up out of the ground or creeks will start flowing. You know, it's just, it's, that's exactly right. You know, a lot of springs come back to the surface. So in addition to getting that, you know, 30 some gallons of water a day that you could keep, you know, in your soil, the, uh, I'll probably get called out on it. The, the receipts are around there somewhere. Like something like 75% of the rain that falls never makes it to the ground. If it lands on a cedar tree, you heard that yeah. one too. Yeah. Just the, the, the funnel shape, you know, I don't know the exact statistical number, but yeah, you know, like it, it traps a lot of the ground that never, never touches, never touches the ground. So you think about it in an upside down funnel. <laughs> you ever had anybody tell you that cedar trees make good deer habitat? Uh, it's a conversation I have in a lot of different individuals. <laughs> and I have to be careful about what I talk about with that too. So, 
we don't have to be careful here. Uh, I I always laugh when I hear that. Like cedar trees are good deer habitat. Like I, I fella, I don't know what show you've been watching or what you've been Look, reading. Man, it, it comes to a point that the the deer, the deer, they get so bad. The cedars get so bad that the deer won't even go in it. You can't tell me that there's that much need for thermal cover. You know, if I can't walk through it, they're not going to walk through it either. Yes. Then then you'll have somebody give you the argument, oh, they bed down underneath them. Oh, they bed down underneath them. I know I have cut a lot of trees in my life. I'm not going to say that I've cut a million, but I've cut a lot of trees in my life. And I can tell you, I have never Okay, wait a minute. One time, one time, I have seen a doe deer bedded down underneath the cedar tree. One time. Have you ever seen it? I don't typically see them there, no. Even on our own land, you know, we'll, uh, they're, they're bedding in the field corners of tall grass. You know, it's, or, you know, next to a plum thicket somewhere. And so. And that's what I always try to tell people. They're like, oh, those cedar trees are good deer habitat. They bed down under them. No, they don't. Deer are brown. And if you manage your pastures correctly, you'll have some of those places where the grass is, you know, two, three, four feet tall. And I, I've run over more deer in the pasture than I've ever found underneath the cedar tree. I've, I've literally run over two deer in the pasture with my side-by-side. -side. They were just laying down in the tall grass. I've run over two yeah. deer pasture and I found exactly one under a cedar tree. So I can say I've run over more in the grass than I've ever seen under cedar trees. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's, that's a tough one. Cause you know, I, I work with a lot of different people and uh, there's a, there's opinions about that every, every direction, you know? So, and most of them, you know, the private clientele that I work with are, you know, coming around to getting rid of almost every tree possible. So, which is, which is good. You know, that's what they should be doing. So. So you mentioned that you, you started with, uh, I think you said a 287 cat and a shear. Now I have little experience with, with some shears, you know, with like a pincher style shear with a Marshall type saw. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how how some of your machinery evolved and what you're using now? Um, well, yeah, I mean the shear and a it's a it's a great machine. I mean it it I it still works today. I started with it uh, ten years ago, um, you know, and it's still still working. It's maintenance free. You know, it was just on a production scale for. Uh, a company like us, it was a slower practice. You know, we we quickly evolved you know, to a higher production uh, unit with the shredders and the mulchers and stuff like that uh, after that. So um, I guess it was all about speed and covering as much ground as possible, you know, and, and stretching the, 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 the cost per hour, you know, where I actually found that, that, you know, looking back on things that the, the shear actually ended up costing people more money to, to, to clear their land uh, just because it was slower than compared to, to, to paying a little more per hour for like the, a forestry mulcher or even these big rotary 
mowers on the smaller trees, it was it was a lot better end product that they were left with, and uh, it it actually saved them money per acre to go that direction. So, um, I guess, and after that, uh, uh, you know, the two eighty seven. Um, I mean, it was kind of a limited machine and what its purposes were because it was a standard flow machine. It wasn't anything uh, really high end at the time, but it was a good starting machine. And, you know, after that, I kept wanting to go faster and faster. And I got into the, the, the rotary mowers that I was talking about and I kept them to a smaller size trees. You know, no, it's it's no fun trying to snip a a group of little tiny trees, you know, three foot tall trees and just thick as dog hair, you know, it's no fun. It just doesn't work. So I, I got into a lot of pastures that were um, just maintenance, you know, keeping the little ones down and, and the, the shear was just too slow for that. So, and, and, and you're mulching it, you're shredding it up and they did a great job doing that and kept everything low, you know, so that's really what stepped me up into the next class of things, getting into bigger machines. I did, you know, a year or two uh, uh, with that machine and it ended up progressing that I ended up getting two 287 cats and, and outfitted with, with, with those rotary mowers and just kept stepping things up as we went. And uh, it, it, it spiraled out of control now. So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a long road. <laughs> so. It, thanks for letting me be a part of that journey. It's been, it's been very uh, rewarding from the outside looking in to watch your company grow and watch you have success. We'll put it that way. Um, One man's uh, nightmare. It, it, yeah, it, it's 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 had its trial and errors for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think we can both agree that. When you're talking about land clearing in the Great Plains and cedar trees, it's not necessarily a steep learning curve, but at times there can be a very steep cost curve. Yes, I would agree. Yep. No, repair bills are not are not very much fun. So, for for those of you out, out there listening to the podcast, I've known Greg for I don't know how long have we known each other four or five years now, something. Yeah. It's pretty much whenever you started the mafia, you know, it, it's been a minute. So I had a, uh, I had a Komatsu PC 270 excavator leased for two years. And I put a, uh, I put a rotary disc mulching head on that and we went around and we spent a lot of time clearing the ranch. I think I put about 800 and I think 860 hours on that machine in just under two years. And what I'm getting at is um, there's still times in my dreams where I operate that machine. And then when the repair bill shows up, it turns into a nightmare real fast. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty quick to get there. <laughs> it's fun when it's good, though, right? I mean, it, yeah, you have your days. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be able to show up, you know, just put grease in everything, fill it up with fuel and go sit in it for eight hours and pull the levers and make a bunch of trees disappear and not have anything break. But those days of eight hours without malfunction are few and far between. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know if I, I'm trying to figure out my, my, my title for myself, whether I'm actually a tree cutter or a mechanic. <laughs> so 
I, I mean, I have, have a have to little be bit both. of both, I think. I think you definitely have to be a large amount of both. I don't think very many guys survive survive as like forestry contractors, especially kind of in the plains where there's no forests. Um, I think it'd be pretty hard to survive if you weren't your own mechanic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you couldn't afford to. I mean, if you know the the dealer support, you know, I still use my dealers quite a bit as well. But I mean, you can go belly up pretty quick if you had to pay somebody to do it all the time. So. Yeah, for sure. So we've talked about a shear. You've talked about some different rotary cutters. So let, let's talk about like in a broad sense of maybe not just what you use, but maybe some of the kind of machinery that's out there and available for, for a guy to use or for, for somebody to hire. Uh, there's, there's a lot of options. Um, you know, primarily in the Midwest, a lot of guys are running the, the dismal truth, like, like, like what we've got in our production fleet, uh, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of disc mulchers in the Midwest. Um, and the drum style mulchers, we implement those two as well. Um, they all have their specific place in the landscape of, of, of what they're, they're good at and what they should be used for. Um, you know, and then they get to the excavators, you know, there's the excavator mounted, the boom mounted unit that we have has its own place too. And I, it, I, I really think it takes a, one of everything to, to really cover, you know, what the demand is for everybody else, you know, but I mean, as a producer, uh, if I was going to hire our tree work done, um, I think I would probably have someone come in like, like us that's set up to do everything rather than, you know, find it, find a company that's, that's reputable to, to, to fit those niche areas. You know, that's, that's my biggest sell for, for everyone is, is, is you know, we can get to 90% of the trees and, and there's no problems getting there. You know, we have this, the right tools to do the job. So, um, and if it, and if a producer was looking to buy their own machine, you know, and they had a lot of trees to do, I would probably, suggest them to go the larger route than you know get away from skid steers uh you know we can we could get into the cost of that but i would absolutely tell someone to go buy a, a big tired machine like we have you know or a big dedicated carrier because for one you know you're going to use the heck out of it and your likeliness of having major failures is is lesser probably because it's built for it you know and it, it, that's your purpose. If you're buying a machine to cut trees, get one that's meant for it. Then, then, then try and make a skid loader do a dedicated machine's job. And then your return of the investment at the end of the day, when you're all done, if you want to sell it, I, I, I really think that uh, you'll have a lot better return on your money. You know, if you want to get rid of it or have something to keep, you know, so. Yeah. And you kind of, you kind of touched on that a little bit. So look, let's, let's back up and let's talk about programs. Now, also kind of in the sense of programs, yes, there's a lot of money floating around out there. And yes, you know, you can do what I did. You can leverage a program and, and go lease a machine and do the work yourself. But I also want to say that I spent a lot of time and a lot of research understanding 
the problem that was in front of me and understanding the tool that I needed to most efficiently deal with that problem. And, you know, that excavator and that disc mulcher, that was the right tool for the job that I had. Is it the right tool to finish what I have? Uh, probably not. I haven't really, haven't really sat down and noodled that out. But if your problem is, you know, you've got 5,000 acres that's pretty flat that's just covered with trees, an excavator that moves three miles an hour is not the solution for you. And likewise, if you're on a really small lot with a bunch of small trees, a big tire machine probably is not necessarily the thing for you. And and we can like we can get back into machinery choice later. Where I want to talk about is programs, because it was it was a thing oh 15 years ago when you know when these equip and these CSP contracts and um, some of these other ones were starting to roll out and be popular down here what guys would do is they would use that contract and they would say i'm going to do the work myself and they would go buy a machine and they would do the work now yes i've seen that be successful i've also seen that be not as successful i've seen guys get way over their heads on a machine not be able to get the work done and not be able to pay for the machine and have a big repair bill and not be able to take care of it and have a big problem with, you know, with their leasing company or whatever. Seen that, not not that often, but, you know, there were a lot of guys that did take advantage of those programs. And, you know, they would go buy a machine, get the work done. And a lot of times down here, a tree clearing contract is also attached to fire. So um, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about how some of the contracts up there in Nebraska work and and what are what are some of the ones available because i'm sure that you probably see more of them than i do because i just look at the stuff that works for me you know on my place and i imagine that you know as a contractor you're seeing uh, you know you're seeing several different landowners in different programs is that right yeah yeah there's there's a lot of cost share funding out there in different programs um it, it just kind of depends on your area and I think the biggest thing that uh, most producers that I find private clientele don't know that they exist. Uh, you know, a lot of them don't know that these programs are available to them and that they could apply for this, this funding to help them out on, on rare occasions. Uh, yeah. You, you run into people that absolutely hate the government. What is, you know, you know, that, that aren't going to, they're, they're afraid that, that this is a, a, a fine print deal that they're going to end up with their land or something crazy like that, you know, and, and, and sometimes get, people get deterred by the, the, the desire for putting fire out there. And, you know, and I've kind of changed my ways too, since when I started, you know, fires really scared me, you know, in our landscape too. And as, as things have gone by, um, I'm not so afraid of that anymore and I've actually been a pretty big promoter of it but that's part of these contracts and you know and and it's a slow transition of up here uh they they really want you to to, to do that um to put fire on the ground because in, in all honesty it's about the only way we're ever gonna get I don't think we'll ever get ahead of the curve of the cedar growth or the encroachment but at least put it to a manageable state where we can slow it down and preserve the ground that we have cleared I mean, it, 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 it's the only way I, I really think. So, I mean, a lot of these contracts, um, 
you know, there's, there's five or six agencies that we work with all the time, you know, it's uh, business forever for one. Uh, we work a lot out in the Sandhills, the Sandhills task force organization. Um, does it forever sales task force like the NRCS equip programs are a, a big one. Um, you know, everybody, every county's got an NRCS office that, that a lot of them do see a, a good amount of funding, um, for that. And then the, we work with the forest service as well. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, it just, it depends on what your, what your idea is, you know, it, whether it's habitat, land conservation, um, or forest health, you know, you, you can, everything's kind of tailored to its own need. You know, if, if you've got a, a oak woodland that's full of cedars, you know, the forest service might be a better direction for you to go. And, you know, that contracts might be better ideal, you know, how to clear it. You know, the, 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 the process is just different for every one of them because we've ran into a lot of different things where it's not a total, total clearing or it's a thinning, you know, and, and it's just, everything's tailored differently to what the producer desires too. So. Okay. Good stuff. There we don't have much of a forest service in Kansas. I mean, not to knock Kansas forest service. They're great. Like I know all 12 of them that work there. <laughs> it's, it's not a very big office because there's just not a whole lot of forest land in, in Kansas at all. Um, but our NRCS offices are, are great with equip and, you know, pheasants forever quail forever. They can't always like directly, give a producer money but like sometimes it has it, a lot of times it have to be funneled through like a grazing group we have one down here called uh comanche pool prairie prairie resource foundation there's also um grazing land coalition i know nebraska has a grazing land coalition um so i guess what i'm saying is is there's other sources if you hate the government that you can go get go ask for assistance and maybe get some, uh, maybe get some cost share to help you get some trees on the ground. So. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it's just tough to, to some of these, these contracts that we do, it, you know, getting into the, the prescribed burn association that's just starting up here. You know, me and my dad, we were kind of against, you know, mass fire because it scares us of the, the ravines and stuff like that. But, you know, when you get the right knowledge of, of the practice of doing that and, and getting experience going into to, to the burning, it's a very controlled, safe practice that, that can be done in very difficult situations. You look at the Los Canyons in Nebraska. They're burning up there just like you guys are in the Flint Hills, man. I mean, it's it can be done. It, it it's a good deal. It really is. Yeah, we uh, <laughs> we just had our burn association meeting uh, like three four weeks ago, and you know we, we we try to have that kind of toward the end of January, beginning middle of February. You know, when before cat before everybody's calving season kind of starts before there's really a whole lot going on it's just a nice slow time of the year and you know everybody everybody likes to talk about the burns that they're planning on doing and we had a bunch from 2022 
that were deferred from 2021 <laughs> that were deferred from 2020 and those are all still on our list for 2023 and nobody's going to do anything like we just we just don't have the moisture down here to burn now i'll say that and last night we were having uh we we're having a work meeting and i was challenged about my stocking plan like do you have your stocking plan your grazing plan written yet well no i don't and it's late it's it's really late should have been done i don't know maybe two months ago but it also hasn't really rained in six months. So I'm pretty nervous about putting together a plan to graze grass that I'm not even sure I can grow because of rain that I don't have yet. So I might even be looking at a destocking plan instead of a stocking and grazing plan. But where it's going with that is I'm not going to be taking in a lot more cattle this year. And if it turns out that, you know, the climate does flip, and we get out of this stupid La Nina trough that we've been in for three years and is making it so dry. If we can get some moisture, like I don't even care if it's a hundred degrees, like we could, we could have the hot El Nino year. It won't bother me. Just bring me the moisture, just bring the rain and we're fine. So it, I even kind of said it last night. I said, well, if it does come in and start raining a lot, I'm not going to have enough cows to eat the grass that I have. And you know, Maybe I'm wrong, but it never seemed like a thing that in June I could call somebody up and say, hey, uh, since it's been raining for the last month, can you bring me another two potloads of cows? That's probably not really a thing that's going to go on. So what I think I'm going to do is if it does t is if it does come in and start raining a bunch and it looks like we're going to have an average rain year, I'll go behind my cows and burn in the summer. Cause that'll give me a nice late, that'll give me a, a big boost in production and new and quality. And then later in the season. So that, yeah. that's a thought. And so there's, you know, we, we're, we're talking a little bit about fire and, oh man, I, someday we're going to do like a whole big series on fire. I think <laughs> my dad put a drip torch in my hand when I was eight years old and said, walk that way. And when you, it, it's very satisfying to me now when I can sit down and I can plan a burnout, you know, go out, help the landowner, but, you know, get the plan and know what's going to happen. I can kind of see it in my brain and go out there that day and send everybody around with the torches and the matches and just be able to sit back and watch, you know, a huge column of black smoke rise into the air from thousands and thousands of cedar trees burning. That's I like that. That's, that's always a lot of Pretty fun. Satisfying. <laughs> it, okay. Here's another one on fire. We're recording this on the 25th of March. So seven years ago, right now, Anderson Creek wildfire was burning in my part of the world. And that was, uh, that was one of the worst wildfires we had down here. So, for those that don't know or don't remember, that was uh, that was a fire that started would have started on the 22nd down in Oklahoma. It burned almost 40 miles north, and then took a right turn and burned about 15 miles east. I think it was total around 340,000 acres. Um, started on Tuesday, and they really didn't get a handle on it until it snowed 
that Sunday morning. Easter morning, we woke up to about two inches of snow, and that put the fire out. So that was uh, that was kind of nice. So what the Anderson Creek fire showed me, because, you know, I, I've had a long history of burning in the Red Hills. You can go, you know, I can go drive by places that we burned, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago and look at them and say, and, and, because I'm 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 here. I live here, and I, I make this I make these laps around, and I observe it, and I try to pay attention to you know if we had a big hot wildfire, what does this look like? You know, one every year. Go back and look, and just see how it changes every year. And after the Anderson Creek came through, while we're in the middle of trying to get all the fence rebuilt, you know, and and make the business be able to function again. I knew it was important to take some time and drive around and look at some older fires, some older wildfires that nobody had come in and done anything with, the trees after the fire. And what I saw I didn't like. You know, you know how we get you know, our steep canyons, we'll get the really tall cedar trees in. Well, when you burn them up with a wildfire, what's left, right? You got a stick. Sometimes it's just the, a lot of times it's just the skeleton instead of a stick. What I learned driving around after, after watching Anderson Creek, what I learned was after five to eight years, those trees start to rot. Like the root balls will start to rot and they'll get loose in the ground and it takes a big windstorm and they start to blow, blow over. And of course, they don't all blow over facing the exact same direction where they'd be easy to come in and pick them up. Oh no, it's like pickup sticks. They're all jumbled and all tangled together. And I looked at that and I said, I don't want that on my ranch. And that's what, you know, that was the big reason why I put the money together and I went and I got the excavator to go clear up all those, all those areas. So we noticed after that fire, because it was so hot and so intense that, you know, it actually got down into those canyons it got down in there and burned up some of those trees that we couldn't get to with skid steers. So we've talked about, you know, how you guys started with a skid steer until, until 2016. That's all I used pretty much. And I can tell you this, you put a mulcher head or a brush cutter or even a shear on the front of a skid steer and its lifespan decreases dramatically and your repair bills will increase dramatically. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Yeah. Your local Napa store better keep a lot of hoses on hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my local parts store, they were a Napa. They changed to a car quest, but uh, yeah, they got good at making hoses. Uh, John Deere, <laughs> you know, I, I knew there were some hoses that I could go to Napa and get, but then there's some hoses we'd have to make the little bit longer trip to John Deere to get because Napa didn't always have the fittings and, they didn't like to carry the three quarter inch, uh, three quarter inch, 4,000 PSI hose. Napa didn't like to carry that. Cause I'm the only guy that needed it. Yeah. They're just like, we're not, we're not buying that special and we're not buying a special fittings. Go to deer. So I'd have to go to deer for all the bigger stuff, but, but paying yeah. their lovely prices. So we saw Anderson Creek and then the next year was 2017. Um, when a Starbuck fire happened and that was your first trip down here, wasn't it? Yep. Yep. Yeah. We brought some materials down. Yep. So the gentleman you knew, so 
yeah, that was that's uh that was pretty much my my big ex first experience to mass uh, acre wildfire like that. So it was very wide eye opening to see it. I think Starbuck was, I think Starbuck was like six hundred thousand acres. It was even bigger. It was it was crazy because Anderson Creek, like we're all walking around like going like, whoo, that was the big fire of our lifetime. Because the last huge wildfire, I think, was in like the early 1960s. There was like nobody alive to remember that when when Anderson Creek came through. And I, man, I remember that, you know, for the weeks and months after, we're like, whoo, man, that was rough to live through. I hope that, I hope that never happens again. I hope we never have to see that again. Yeah. And then, yeah. And we were thinking, oh, you know, it'll be years We'll never see this record broken for, you know, this, this size of wildfire. And next year, Mother Nature said, hold my beer. <laughs> yeah. And what's even like in, um, and then we get down into 2018, right? We didn't have any bad, well, we had some bad fires, but no huge, huge fires in Kansas. Friends down in Oklahoma, southwest of me, you know, kind of down on the south end of the Red Hills, um, they had some fire issues down there. And brother, if you think you've got a tree problem in Northeast Nebraska, you think there's trees, you know, my place around Bill's place, you've never seen that part of Oklahoma. Like that part of wow. Oklahoma is, is thick. I didn't go down there when that, when those fires were burning in 2018. Holy crow. Like, there was there was some impressive like full sections of just solid cedar trees fire go through and just smoke all of them like can you imagine that can you imagine that heat yeah you better not be in front of it <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a there's a page that i follow on facebook there's some storm chasers out of oklahoma city um not going to mention their names but you know, there, there's a, there's several of them that, you know, when fires are around that, you know, they'll take their storm chase trucks and they'll go out. Um, there's one guy that's pretty good. He knows where to be. This other group, every time I watch them, they make me cringe. I'm like, guys, you, you should not drive through there. You should not drive through there. Hey, when that smoke is coming, you know, from one side and it's in front of you and behind you, it's time to be somewhere else. Like, yeah. <laughs> we should not be there right now. You should really be moving somewhere. But uh, I, I don't know. I guess they can do what they want to do in their truck that they're that you know the team. So, I mean, at, well, actually, this after after the 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 fires you've had down there, have you seen a, a a better response to how the trees are being managed on the land? Like from the neighbors? Yeah, I mean seeing you know i guess in, in my opinion uh, uh we had the halsey fire uh this last summer um not near the the acreage that, that you guys see down there but it practically went through the forest and the cedar trees um it's it sparked a lot of interest more more with the the government agencies than than just the private guys but you know okay this really can happen in our landscape that we can have these massive wildfires too. And how are we going to prepare ourselves for this? You know, if this ever happens 
you know, what does our infrastructure look like? How are we defending ourselves? You know, um, and we've done a lot of jobs like that where the fire has actually brought a benefit if, if you know, to, to try and be preventative in, in a way. So at least keep people are protecting their infrastructure better, you know, removing the trees and stuff, um, you know, that are in immediate danger of their homes or, um, you know, a lot of the game and parks ground. We do a lot of work for the, the state on the public grounds where, you know, cabins are really in a fire hazard zone. So I was just curious if you've seen anything like that happening after your fires. Well, okay. So just from, just from my personal observation, of you know, the, the structures that were lost during Anderson Creek and during Starbuck. Almost any structure that was lost during those two fires down here had cedar trees right around the house. Like within, within the safe distance. I mean, minimum safe distance would be, I think, four times the height of that fuel. So, you know, if you have a 20-foot tall cedar tree, it needs to be 80 feet away from your house, right? Closer than that... When it, if it gets fire on it, it's going to get really hot and get your house really hot. It just, you know, hearing somebody lose their house or lose buildings and lose livestock is heartbreaking. But then, you know, you drive by that site and you see where that building was and you see just a perfect line of cedar tree skeletons around three sides of it. You go, well, maybe we could have done something in the beginning to prevent this. Um, I'm not going to say that I've seen a bunch of people go in and remove shelter belts or trees from around their house. I think people are definitely a lot more aware of the fire, of the fire hazards. Um, personally though, I did, I did remove a cedar tree row that was behind my dad's house. Now I got to tell a little story about this cedar tree row. So I, we talked earlier about, you know, the machine and all the time dad spent clearing Clearing, the, clearing the ranch. So it was long about 96, 97. He's got most of the ranch, got the trees cleared on most of the ranch. He's burned the whole thing like five times. Okay. So you can imagine there's not a whole lot of trees left that, that are, you can get to. So he decides that it's too cold in his house during the winter. So he's going to plant a shelter belt behind his house to help break some of the wind. So I'll give him a little bit of credit. He tried for two or three years with a bunch of different kinds of trees to get them established, to get them to grow, and nothing would grow back there. So he gave up, and he went and he rented the tree spade from the conservation district. And he went and he got some trees. Now here's the, here's the catch. There weren't any trees to get on the ranch. So we had to go to the neighbor's property and, and steal them. Okay. Now, grand theft cedar tree, nobody's going to care. Okay. <laughs> nobody's going to care if you go steal 20 cedar trees out of their pasture. I don't think anybody's going to be upset about that. Where, where dad went wrong, well, maybe not where he went wrong is... So when you have a tree spade, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen them. Oh, yeah. For those that don't know, it's, it, it's got these four big spades that dig down underneath the root ball of a tree, and then you can lift it up and carry it off. 
Okay. Well, once you have that, you know, once you dig under that root ball, you have to have a hole to put it in. So first thing you have to do before you go get a tree is you have to use your tree spade to go dig the hole to put the tree in. So you scoop that dirt out and you set it down. Then you go get your tree and you put your tree in the hole. Then you go dig your next hole and you go put that back in the first tree's hole and you get another tree and you keep doing that, right? So we got like 15, 20 trees and didn't think anything of it. A couple weeks later, he's in the bar drinking a beer, eating a cheeseburger. And the guy that was riding that neighbor property, like that was taking care of it, going out and checking the cows on it. He walks into the bar. I wasn't there. So this is all being relayed to me. So you know, who knows how much of this, this story is embellished or made up or whatever. So dad says he was just sitting there and this guy come in. His name was Gene. He said Gene came in and he just looked like he was all kinds of out of sorts and confused and just had obviously had questions. So he come over and he sat down next to my dad at the bar. He's just, Ted, I got something really strange out there out there in that gates pasture we need to talk about i don't know what's going on i don't know what's going on and dad already knew like instantly he knew what was going on but he played along they finished lunch got in their vehicles went back out there and apparently it's it's difficult to get those like the plugs of grass the big cone of grass and dirt the same size every time so there were some of those holes that had a plug in them that was down like a foot. There were some that was sticking up six inches. Some that were down six inches. Some that were a little bit irregular. Some of them were turned like, you know, the wrong grass sitting up six inches in a big circle just in the middle of nowhere. So it was like, it was just really strange. And they got out there and dad just had to start laughing. Like it, as soon as they went up to one of those big plugs that was not sitting in the ground right, dad just had to start laughing and told him what was going on. So. But anyway, I told that story so I could tell this one. So that was 97 and he went out there and I, I, I remember I gave him some, I gave him a hard time about it. It's like, dad, you spend your whole life cutting cedar trees. And then what do you go do? You plant them behind your house. It's like, well, it's windbreak. Got to keep a house warmer. Cut down on heating bills. Arr. Like, okay, fine. Whatever. Well, like three quarters of them were female trees. Like, so. In 2016, when Anderson Creek wildfire came through, let me back up. In 2008, there was a there was an incident with some neighbors to the south, and they had a little bit of a problem two days after they lit the fire. And it came on north, and it burned about it burned the middle half right out of the ranch. And that fire came right past Dad's house with his shelter belt on the north side of it. And we had to do a bunch of work that day in 2008 to keep fire out of those trees. 2016 comes around. I've got other problems to deal with that day rather than messing with that tree row. So I was, you know, I, I was somewhere else watch, watching something else and a friend of mine rolled up and was like, Hey, is there anything I can do? I was like, yeah, just go check that tree row behind dad's house. You know, it's, Make sure we're make sure we're okay there and it's not creeping into that because he keeps he keeps everything around the house real short a lot of it for fire safety but what we and we always had kind of thought that the fire would either be going you know a north or a south because those are the winds we have most of the time then you know straight north straight south you know a few degrees here or there not a big deal 
one of the big key insights I've had in the last seven years is the worst wind we have is out of the northwest. And that northwest wind is usually followed by, is like we'll have a 20 to 25 mile an hour south wind that the next day or dirt sometime during that day can switch from 20, 25 out of the south to 50 to 60 miles an hour out of the northwest. It's just the weather pattern I've noticed that we get. So after 26, after 2008, not touch and go, save it, touch and go with the tree row behind the house. After 2016, touch and go with the tree row behind the house. I decided I wasn't going to worry about it anymore. So when I got some time that summer, <laughs> summer of 16, I put the old mulcher head back on the G back on the John Deere and we turned those cedar trees behind my dad's house to dust. I didn't even ask him. I just woke up one morning and decided enough was enough. I'm never going to fight fire behind that house to try to keep that tree grow from going on fire. I'm going to grind them all to dust. I was out there and I was like halfway through them and dad rolled back in from town. I was like, what are you doing? I'm like, um, not going to have your house burned down. <laughs> That's what we're doing. <laughs> Oh, my heating bills are going to go up. Like, shut up. I'll buy you another quart of wood. You just throw it in the stove. Oh, anyway. So that's the, the number one thing for me for fire safety in the plains is cut the damn cedar trees up from around your house and your buildings. You just get rid of those and your, your risk of losing those structures to wildfire drops immediately and dramatically. Yeah, I would agree. That's a real thing to actually be thinking about. You know, it's, it's God forbid it ever happens, but it, it's nice to have that assurance in the back of your mind that you are prepared. You know, it, California and their fires, they get all the attention. And okay, rightly so. There's a lot more people that live out there. But when I see them like take two weeks to fight a 700 acre fire, I kind of wonder about that. But then yeah. again, you know, they've, they've got some special terrain and access challenges that, you know, a lot of times we see a fire over there, we can go there. You know, they necessarily yeah. can't get there. You know, they can't just drive there like we can. So, and there's, there's more people. But the moral of the story is, if you're going to live in an environment that's fire prone, which is pretty much everywhere, if you're not in the Appalachian mountains, pretty much everywhere is prone to fire. And we have to deal with it periodically, whether we live in town or whether we're going to live, you know, way out in the country and try to be off grid weirdos. We've got to deal with fire and understanding how, how to better position our or how to better build our businesses, build our structures, and and just operate our ranch, our farms and ranches, with that in mind. That yeah, there's going to be a fire, and it's a lot easier to just let the fire burn around you and go around you than than maybe it is to try to fight something with 50 mile an hour wind, or to have you know defenses that that will stand a 50 mile an hour wind. I don't know what I'm I'm just saying words now, making things up. I think you're on a good path. Um, so if somebody, uh, somebody's out there wanting to get started 
in the mulching business or forestry, forestry mulching, tree clearing. Um, I, I mean, I know that you'd, I'd probably try to talk them out of it because it's, you know, it's a lot of pain. It's a lot of heartache and it's a lot of huge repair bills and there's a lot of competition, but it is something that's needed and it is a growth market. So what would you say right. to somebody that wants to start their own forestry mulching business? You know, I, I guess I would uh, really take a hard look at your surroundings. So, you know, what, what, what is your market going to be in your area, in your landscape? You know, if, um, what's your target size material that, that you're going to be going after um, to, to dictate what kind of machinery you purchase? Um, and just to prepare yourself, you know, you really got to love it. You got to like what you're doing and be committed to it uh, to see the success of it. You know, um, I, I, I guess I'm kind of maybe in a unique circumstance, but, you know, I, I rolled with every opportunity, whether it was a, a a really good one or not i guess uh if 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 a machine came available or something that i took a lot of risks you know don't be afraid to take a risk and challenge yourself of what you can financially and 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 hopefully sustain um and, it, and it's always seemed to turn out good for me I've, I've had my share of bad things happen but you know the majority of the financial um purchases and, and investments um in machinery has, has paid out, I guess, for us. Um, but yeah, it's mainly just, you know, don't be afraid to, to run with an opportunity to expand. Um, and if it usually works out, I guess. So at least for us, it was, and, and, and be prepared to work it. It, it. You know, I spent a long time. It took several, several years to get things off. You know, I, I, fresh out of college, I was never um, good at marketing or, you know, trying to to grow the business. So it's something I really learned as I as I went. Um, and I spent a lot of time. You know, uh, it's not just a, a nine to five job. You have to make it work, and you have to desire to make it work. Otherwise, you know, it, you're only limited to the success that you give it. You know, so I guess that's where I would make the. the the best assumption is just you know pay attention to your area of what what your what your niche is what you need to do and 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 find an avenue that that's going to work for you so good stuff good stuff what uh so you're based in royal nebraska is that correct yep yeah yeah i just live a few miles north of royal in the country um I just in the last couple of years, I, I, I just uh, got a shop the last year or so, and that's in Brunswick, Nebraska. So got our own shop to do our maintenance and stuff in. Otherwise, this is the first time that uh, I've, I've ever had a indoors building to do my repair work on. So, yeah. So I can only imagine how nice that is to have an indoor building that all your stuff fits in with a hard surface floor that's not dirt. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it and, take a and dirt floor under a roof over outside any day. The idea of it was great, but I do realize how many times now my machinery breaks down in the field. And it's like, you know, I wish I would have, that would have happened at the shop. You, know, you just got to <laughs> fix it where it's at. <laughs> so, yeah. But 
occasionally, you know, we, we try really hard to get it back to a decent place where all the tools are. And, and yeah, it's nice to work in a shop, especially in the winter. So. So what all, what all areas do you cover? I know you've been down here almost in my neck of the woods, uh, working on some jobs. So how far are you willing to travel? Um, you know, actually right now I'm, I'm trying to slow down with, with the, the, the long distance traveling. Now that I've got children, you know, I got a, a five-year-old boy and a two-year-old daughter. So, uh, I'm trying to limit the, the far distance stuff, but yeah, we've gone into South Dakota, um, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, you know, a lot of the surrounding areas and, and, you know, I could go further if I wanted to, um, I've been invited to several different places that, you know, it's probably a good opportunity, but I don't know as I want to do it in this time in life anymore. <laughs> so I guess if I can stay, you know, in an immediate couple hour range, I would be pretty happy. So. Are you having but, trouble staying busy? Um, no, no, we're, it seems like every year, uh, everything is is going better there's more jobs available um uh i think that's partially because of these these uh promotions for the the uh the programs are getting better um in the state level stuff you know uh with the fires and and different you know forest health management practices improving you know that's that's opened a lot of the the doors for that um and, and there's a big push out in the sandhills of Western Nebraska. Uh, you know, that's the only sandhills in the nation. So they're really trying to preserve it. You know, there's a lot of opportunities out there. Um, and we've been a contender out there quite a bit. And yeah, so I, I, I'm not having any trouble finding different jobs. And, and I'm, I'm trying to diversify a little bit more as well. I'm, I'm trying to get into more of the traditional side clearing stuff too, um, you know, doing the regular excavator, excavator rip, ripping them out and piling and burning and stuff like that. You know, there's, there's been a pretty good boost to that stuff lately too. So yeah, I like to diversify. Otherwise it just gets too monotonous, you know. I can, I can understand that. So, all right. So a nice change of pace makes a man happy. <laughs> well, if folks want to, uh, want to hire your services or get in touch with you or check you out on social media, where can I send them? Yeah, uh, I've got a pretty good uh, extensive Facebook page I try to keep up on. Um, that's at MTS Tree Service out of Royal Nebraska. So if you look us up, we've got a big orange orange logo for our profile picture. Um, yeah, I mean, you can check out all our equipment. I got a lot of good videos on there. Um, I try to promote pretty interesting stuff. I mean, I find it interesting anyway. If you like to see cedar trees die, I got some pretty good videos of that on there. So, yeah. I don't see them as much as I used to. Maybe I need to go look for them so I can give every single one of them a thumbs up. I remember I told you at one point you in time, you were like, oh, am I posting too many videos? I'm like, no. Every time I see <laughs> cedar tree dying, I will give a thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. And I've actually kind of probably been too lackadaisical about it I, I last year or so i've just been so busy i haven't put a lot of a lot of my stuff on there you know i just haven't had time or i forget to take a picture and just don't have time to pull my phone out you know and and, and get something going but yeah so i'll try and do better than that brian make you happy <laughs> i mean don't do a 
I'm not going to say do it on my account, but you know, it's always better to be more active on social media to keep your following active and engaged. I say that, yeah, there's probably going to be a dozen people write in and be like, you only post once a week and it's just about your stupid podcast, sucker. What are you talking about? Um, I, I'll also say this, though. Facebook around the end of January changed how they do everything. I, and my theory is it's because the economy is heading towards recession. The Fed's raised interest rates. So there's no more free money. And these tech companies now have to turn profit. So they've turned to selling a lot of advertising. Like, wow. yeah. if, you're, if you're scrolling Facebook later, take a few extra seconds and look at who's posting what and see if there's a time or if it says sponsored content or promoted content. And it almost feels like half of what you're seeing on the book of face anymore. It's all paid content. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of ads. I guess I didn't know that, but yeah, it makes sense. You're scrolling along. So just, just something to keep in mind if you're looking to get back active on social media and do, and do promotion, just, you know, your organic, everybody, my, my organic reach on all my pages fell on Facebook. Hmm. So take that. Well, that's kind of discouraging. Yeah. Just, that was a big thing for me. Just like you, you know, we're in business to make money. I mean, Facebook's in business to make money and we're not their customer. We're their product. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that was probably the biggest thing for me, too, starting out was what's the easiest way you you, you could reach the, the biggest number of people for the least amount of cost? Take some pictures on Facebook, show what we were doing. <laughs> you know, I maybe it's the millennial generation that I come from, but, you know, I used it to my advantage to, to get get word out what we were doing and. I was kind of proud of that. And it's, it's nice to see uh, almost as an activity log to look back in the last few years, you know, where I've been, what I've done. And, you know, what's really cool is, you know, my wife, you know, I, I drive around and I'm like, Hey, I did a job there, you know? Oh yeah. You know, that's a pretty regular thing, but I can pull back that picture that I had from five, six years ago. This is what it used to look like. And this is what it is now. You know, it's just, it's just a big log for me. <laughs> so, yeah. Kind of like how I am with burning around here, driving around. Yeah, we burnt that sucker in 2009. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's nice to look back on that stuff. So I I, kind of have a a love-hate relationship with social media. I spend probably too much time on it and try and limit myself. But, you know, I have to, uh, you know, say it was a good thing in that that aspect. So. Yep. Yep. I think, I mean it's pretty obvious that short form videos are the way to go. Like right now, I mean, we're talking into March, 2023. I mean, somebody they could go in and adjust their algorithms and something will be better next week. But I think for right now, the short format video is where it's at. Like that's, that's what's capturing the eyeballs and that's the content that, you know, these platforms are really trying to push out or they're really trying to emphasize short form videos. I mean, TikTok, you know, for the evil Chinese spyware app that it is, um, 
TikTok is just the best at it. And, you know, all, all the other platforms are, they're playing catch up. Um, yeah. All right, bud, you ready to wrap this up and uh, go enjoy your weekend? Yeah, whatever is up with you, man. I'm, I'm glad to talk to you again. This was, I, I was actually really excited and nervous about this, but this is a lot of fun. I enjoyed this. Yeah, you don't I mean, there's a lot we could talk about, but you know, <laughs> this is great. I'm just happy to be here. So, oh, there's a ton we could talk about, and probably not all of it would make the podcast. <laughs> you know, I, this is this is the thing that I'm that I'm I I kind of touch base with my wife about is that you know I looked up to you for for the longest time with your YouTube channel, and you know this. I've told you this, but yeah. I've watched your that cigar and that turbo saw and that skid steer. When I first started, when I was trying to decide what I was going to do, it's like, man, this guy really knows what's going on before I even knew you, like years before I knew you. That was like, yeah, I, I've looked up to you a lot, man. So I, I'm really honored to be here. So, Thanks for that. I, I can't even remember when that when that video was. And when I put it up, my dad was like, well, it's not very professional. You're smoking and you're cussing. <laughs> like, it's YouTube. Nobody's ever going to, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to see it. Nope, it's forever. It's forever. And seven, eight years down the line, some kid will be like, Yeah, I was watching that. I was watching, been watching you forever. Shit, I guess I am yeah. a bottle. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I just really looked up to you at that, man. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you, you put this mafia together and brought all, you know, you, you had a, a, a big role in the success of bringing, uh, a lot of people together, you know, I wouldn't have met some of the people that I've met in my career without your influence of starting the mafia, you know, and bringing that network of cutters together. So. All right. You, you, you've mentioned now I got to, now I got to talk about it. All right. Yeah. You can't just say mafia like five times in an hour and 15 yeah. minutes and not say yeah. something about it. Okay. So what Greg's talking about y'all is I want to say it was like I think it was January. It was like right around the middle of January, 2016, about two months before the fire. I'd been on a tree clearing project uh, that I had some cost share money with up in the Northwest part of the ranch. And I started using mulcher heads. And uh, the one that I started with was, you know, it, it is what it is. It was a good place to start. It's probably a good value. Um, but I was, I'd go on the internet and I'd, you know, look up, like, you know, try to find operating tips and tricks, try to find maintenance tips, try to find information out. And I'm thinking, man, it's 2016, you know, like the whole world, the, the sum of knowledge of the universe is on the internet. We just have to connect it. And I was sitting there in the machine one day, taking a lunch break, eating an MRE because I'm, you know, miles out in the bush, miles away from the house, eating an MRE, flipping through my phone, and I'm seeing, like, service truck mafia and tow truck mafia. I'd seen all these hashtags on Instagram, and I'm thinking, oh, there's mafia, you know, service truck mafia, you know, utility bed mafia. I'm like, well, hell, why not mulcher mafia? And I searched, and nobody was using that hashtag. So hashtag Mulcher Mafia, I think, started January 14th or 16th, 2016 with a picture of my dear skid steer and my uh, ASV branded Fecon built 
ahead in a cedar grove on kind of a kind of a misty cloudy crappy day i could i could probably take you to the exact spot i was standing when i took that picture um so what that what that's grown into now and i was just looking the other day i think there's like 6200 members um so multer mafia is a facebook group that we've got all kinds of tree clearing contractors together um i mean there, it's an inter, there's there's international presence. There's guys from uh, Europe, guys from England, guys from Australia. I think we even have some South Americans down there. We've been successful at keeping the Chinese spammers out, I think, for the most part. Um, but it's just it's guys sharing sharing information, sharing knowledge, and networking. But the the biggest benefit, Greg, that's come out of that whole group is it's given end users in the field a direct line back to manufacturers like cat caterpillar number one caterpillar they wouldn't have built those saddle tanks on the new 299s if it hadn't been for jerry arthur right the asv 135 would not exist if it wasn't for our group uh, what is it? The Fecon Viking teeth. So the, the Fecon Viking teeth, that's, that's kind of a fun story. I don't know if you uh, were around or remember that. Uh, Fecon mm-hmm. came out with the new mulcher head in, in like in 16, like they came out with the, their, their death control rings. And the first knife that they had for that depth control head was crap. And everybody told him. And immediately there was a bunch of guys that was like, we need a knife that does this. We need this kind of knife. And Fecon had it in six months. Like they went from hearing customer demand to designing a new tool and having it in production in six months because of the group. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of influence there. It really is. And that, so for me, you know, and you know, I turned, I turned, daily operations in the group over to the admin team several years ago and it's a great group of guys um but it's it's extremely gratifying to see that connection being built between end users and the engineers and the factory engineers and 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 have them talking to each other and know that there's communication i know you've worked with you've worked with more than one company to help you know because of Ultramafia, you've worked with more than one company to help improve a product or improve a tool. Right. That's awesome. But I think what's even better to see is, is to see success stories like yours, to see guys like Brad, uh, just Ricky, Sean, David, Ryan Hutto. I mean, look, the list goes on. Like there's just, there's a lot of guys that it's been, really awesome to see other people succeed and it and to know that like to know that you are part of their journey that's that's what it is for me that's what i really that's that's what keeps me coming back to that's the group a big thing to be proud of so thank you brian for that cloudy day <laughs> <laughs> yeah well no, it's actually it's been a really good deal man so i i i there's been a lot of times that you know, I've thought about that. It's like, man, this person I just met, I wouldn't have even even known they existed because except for you. So, yeah. Well, you can, 
you might be cussing me for some of those in a few years. You never know. Yeah. Time will tell. <laughs> All right. I need to get moving on with my day, buddy. It's been great yeah. to chat and catch up with we'll us again sometime. Yeah, that was fun. I, I had a lot of fun then there. So, yeah. Well, let me know if there's anything else I can do for you. We'll do. If you ever get, you need to come down. Like, just come down and visit. Pack up, I do. up your wife, your kids, and just come down for a few days. Yeah, Brad's been wanting me to come down there and see. I, I don't get down there enough. I really should. That's part of my goal in the next few years is just next year to make more time. <laughs> you know what? We'll tour over to Bill's place. Because I bet you've got some yeah. pictures over there. We'll tour over to Bill's place. I do. It looks like. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to see him again as well. I get a we get a Christmas card from him about every year too. So yeah, we keep in touch. You know, we only we're we're talking about a mutual friend, y'all. So just don't be confused. He only lives like it's not even forty miles away, like thirty five miles maybe. I never see him around here. Like the the last uh, time I saw him, where were we? We're um I, I saw him two times last year and both times it was at a conference. It was at a conference or a meeting that I was just like, what are you doing here, Bill? And he's like, well, what are you doing here? He's like, well, I'm speaking on this. And he said, oh, well, I'm on that panel too. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> we had one of those moments. Yeah. Man, that's some of the nicest people you got down there. Uh, I mean, everyone is just genuinely good. I had so much fun meeting everybody down there. Yeah. Now there's, there's some special ones. We'll put it that way. Oh, everybody does. Yeah. Yeah. One um, of these days I'll find my way up to the Northeast corner of Nebraska. I have no idea what it even looks like up there other than your picture. I'll give you the grand tour. That'd be great. I'll come down there. You come up here. <laughs> I mean, I've been through the Les Hills. Oh God. What was that? 15 years ago. Went up there and talked to him about burn associations. That's pretty. Sand Hills. That's pretty. That uh, that weird forest that's up there in the northwest corner of the state. You know what I'm talking about? This is like there's just this like random thousand acres of trees out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's slipping my name. Yeah, I, I know where you're talking though. Yeah. It's, it's weird because you're just like driving, you're winding your way up through this, you know, up and down these hills through the roads, and you know, like make a corner and pop over a hill, and all of a sudden you're in the middle of a forest in the middle. Of, it's like pine trees here why yeah yeah that's that's really cool where where i'm from right where i live is is a ideal location to see it all of nebraska because you know i'm 40 minutes from missouri river to the north and the sand hills are 40 minutes to the west you know and to the south is traditional farm ground you know it's i got a blend of everything rel relatively close to me so yeah it's been i've been able to work in a lot of different landscapes with it so well cool maybe one of these days i'll get up there and i'll just bring a lunch bag and jump in your jump in that excavator and go to town for a couple of days give you a break absolutely you're welcome anytime <laughs> like, that's almost my idea of, an, of a vacation what are you going to do for vacation uh go run greg's excavator for a week there you go how's that a vacation hey i'd probably even pay you to do it <laughs> Yeah, now now we're talking. Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> you know, what I really want to do is, I if I could find somebody that could, you know, 
take care of things at the ranch and I could be gone on short notice, I'd really love to go work with David West on fire crews. Yeah. That yeah. would be fun. That would be crazy. That would be a lot of fun. I tried to look into that stuff, but man, the fine print of that is a lot. <laughs> so I, my hat's off to him for doing that. Maybe, maybe instead of being a prime on that, maybe look at being a subcontractor on that to somebody that already has all the insurance and, and stuff and already has the contract in. I mean, that, yeah. I don't know. I, I would try to run away from anything with federal government contract attached to it, or maybe that's a way to, uh, yeah. to lock in, you know, to lock in a sweet deal long-term. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. No. I'm ready to get out of here. I'm not ready. I, well, I need to get out of here. Well, I, I get you. I shake your hand, sir. I appreciate you. <laughs> appreciate you too, Greg. Been great to chat this morning. All right. Well, man, you, you be safe out there. Uh, yeah, and take care. Don't be a stranger. Always call. Will do. Likewise. Um, and, uh, well, I don't know how to, how to turn this off either, so... That's okay. But like, I got a little thing. We'll just go. We'll go ahead and say, all right, everybody out there in podcast land, y'all have a great week, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. And then I push the stop button.